Uh, now our final presenter of the day is Bill Bonner. He's the founder of Agora. And he's not here, but since we're gonna show a video um, of him presenting. And since he's not here, I, I guess it doesn't really matter what I say about him. So I'll, I'll just say he's, um, he's a really good boss. He's a super nice guy. And uh, I'm sure you're going to love his presentation. So <laughs> cue it up. Hello. I'm uh, Bill Bonner. My speech title is Never Never Land. And the uh, subtitle is Anything is Possible in a NERP World. And let me say first that I'm sorry I can't be there with you. It's always a pleasure visiting Vancouver in the summertime, especially when you're coming from Baltimore. And I'm very grateful to Rick and his team for continuing the tradition of holding these very valuable investment retreats there in July. It's very stimulating to me to take part in this conversation. So what do I have for you? Well, first, you know, bear with me. I've got a few facts and figures to get through, so it'll seem a little boring at first, but it'll improve. Well, in the first seven decades of the 20th century, the relationship between debt and GDP in America was fairly stable with about $1.50 of debt for every dollar of output. And then after the U.S. monetary system changed in 1968 and 1971, two changes, the debt grew faster than GDP. So the ratio changed up to 370% of GDP. That excess, I call it excess, is about $33 trillion. So we have a GDP in the US, these are the basic numbers. We have a GDP of about 17 trillion. At 150%, it's $1.50 of debt per, per dollar of output, we'd have about 26 trillion in debt. But instead, it's almost 60 trillion. So we have about 33 trillion. Uh, we would have about 33 trillion in less in debt if we'd stuck to the old ratio. So our subject for today really is why we didn't stick to the old ratio and where it leads. And I've named this place Never Never Land. It's like Michael Jackson's place in California. It's a place where anything can happen and something bad always does. Now recently, we wondered, we have some apartments in Baltimore, and we wondered whether we should spend the money to fix them up. If we spent $50,000 on each of them, would we get enough in rent to make it worthwhile? And the key, the key to making these kinds of decisions depends on the cost of capital. How much does that $50,000 cost you? So at 4%, for example, you would need a return somewhere in excess of about $2,000 a year to make the improvements pay off. Or you need about $170 a month per, per apartment for our building. Well, these are very dumpy apartments now, and they rent for about $800 a piece, but it's a good area, it's up and coming, and uh, so putting $50,000 into each one would mean a total of investment of about $400,000. And of course, there would be a loss of income while you were working on it. Still, the investment to us looks worthwhile and largely because it's next door to our house and we don't really want a dumpy apartment house next to our house. But the key question is always, what is the real cost of capital? You know, financially, it only makes sense if the return on investment is greater than the cost of money. That's why this is probably the single most important question in a capitalist economy. The interest rate is often called the hurdle rate, 
Because if an investment can't jump that hurdle, it means it's not a good idea. And instead of adding to the wealth of the human race, it actually subtracts from it. The cost of saved up capital is more than the capital it produces. So the net result is a loss of capital. So if you don't know what the hurdle rate really is, you're likely to do a lot of very dumb things and you're likely to get poorer. And it won't be obvious at first, it'll only be obvious later. But what is the real cost of capital now? What's the hurdle rate? Does anybody know? Well, of course, the actual interest rate you pay is knowable. And it depends, of course, on who you are. If you're a well-connected financial insider, say you're a member of the Federal Reserve's banking network, well, you can borrow from the Fed itself at 0.25% annual rate. For most of the financial establishment, banks, investment firms, private equity houses, and large investors, the rate is only a little bit bigger. So the corporate carry trade functions by borrowing at between 0.5% and 1%, and then taking the money and putting it back into shares or bonds you know, with a 2 3% dividend yield. And obviously, this is profitable because the, the difference is already a couple percentage of, of interest. And the interest itself is tax deductible. Now, Chris Mayer told me about a finance company he knows that borrows at 0.28%. And he, he asked, well, how can you not make money at that rate? Well, since the real rate of consumer price inflation is considerably higher than the borrowing cost, this is effectively free money. And no, you know, it's really better than free money. It's what I call NERP for negative interest rate policy. And this bizarre situation is a threat to the economy. It's a threat to investors. It's a threat to your wealth. But it's an opportunity. As it evolves, trillions of dollars are going to change hands or disappear. And you want to make sure they're going in the right way. Now, the lifestyle implications are, are, are interesting. Suppose you wanted to live in a mansion. Well, the top 1% of housing transactions in the San Francisco area take place at more than $5 million. So if you are able to borrow at the Fed's rate, your interest cost per month would be $1,050. That's about as much as it costs to rent a pad in a trailer park. So in theory, a zero rate makes having no money of no importance. It just doesn't matter. Now, in anticipation of my conclusion, most likely the best trade of our era will be finding ways to lock in the extraordinary gains offered by this free money policy while avoiding the extraordinary losses that will come when the free money era ends. And off the top of my head, you can borrow money, if you can borrow money at a NERP rate, a negative interest rate policy, and use it to buy something real, something productive and profitable, like a timber farm or a distillery or an apartment house or a tin mine. You need something that produces enough income to pay your interest charges, and you want to make sure you've got the longest possible term on your fixed rate mortgage. You are probably going to come out ahead. So let's look at this. You've got to understand this phenomenon. Nothing like this has ever happened in the history of the world, as far as I know. So we have to look at it closely and try to figure out, figure out what's really going on. Now, free capital is capital of no value. In theory, whether you're rich or poor, you can live about the same lifestyle as we so, saw with that example of the house. So in theory, in a free, in a free capital era, wealth doesn't matter. At 0.25%, the return on a million dollars of savings is just $2,500 per year, so it's hardly worth the effort. The typical firefighter earns that much every two weeks. But 
it doesn't really work that way. Because in practice, you have to have a lot of money to benefit directly from NERP. From the lowest Fed rate to the top junk bond rate and payday loan rates is a widespread. For example, if you're in Argentine airport and you want to raise money, you'll pay about 10%. The average yield on high yielding US corporate bonds, though, is only 6 or 7%. Auto loans are only about 4%. Student debt is only about 7%. Credit card debt's about 10%. Now, private borrowers can't get a mortgage loan at a microscopic rate, but a private equity fund can. And generally, the financial industry can borrow very cheaply. And it's this ability of large borrowers to get super cheap money that's changed the entire world. And that's a big part of the reason why the 1% has done so well. Those are the people who are financially well-connected and well-off, and they can borrow well below the price of consumer price inflation. The rate of consumer price inflation, I should say. But as Richard Cantillion, he observed in the 18th century, this is the time of John Law in, the, in France, when you're handing out free money, it pays to be in the front of the line. There's a big difference between those with access to money and those who don't have access to it. And you can see that by looking at the real estate numbers in the US. And you've probably heard that there's a real estate revival going on, but what you may not have heard that it, it's only at the upper end where people have access to this free money. And I'll quote here, among homes sold to the top 1% of households, volume is up by 20 to 100% in most markets. And that's from uh, former White House Director, Budget Director David Stockman. He says, by contrast, transaction volume during the last four months was down for the entire remaining 99% of the market in 26 out of 30 cities. On Long Island, for example, sales to the top 1% rose 72% over the four months to the end of April. For everyone else, everyone else, sales were down. Now, they've blamed the weather for the, the downturn in the housing market and for the punk numbers in the first quarter and for everything. But the truth is the sun shines just the same for the rich as it does for the poor. That's not an explanation. Capital is cheap for everyone, but for the rich and well-connected, capital really is free. And by the way, they don't calculate the rate of consumer price inflation correctly. And there's MIT has this thing they call the Billion Prices Project. But rather than make adjustments and substitutions to try to figure out what prices should be, MIT merely records the prices and tells us what they're actually doing. Well, at present, they calculate a consumer price index going up about 3.9% per year. That means that anybody who borrows money at 3.9% or lower gets his money for free. And that's most of the financial world. So what can you do with free money? Well, I've been watching Amazon. Now, I've been watching this company for a long time. I've been in the publishing business, been there for 35 years, and I've seen the effect that Amazon has on our business. And today, in the book business, we can't choose to ignore Amazon. We have to negotiate with it. And we know that Amazon can, at any moment, it can crush us because it's our biggest customer. And I've also followed Amazon as an investment. How did this happen? Many years ago, I called Amazon the river of no return <laughs> because it takes cash from investors who are excited by the business model, but it never makes a profit. Now, a lot of people have made a lot of money out of Amazon. It's been a great investment for those who got in early, at least on paper. But look at what really happened. The company raised and spent some three, $347 billion 
it sold $340 billion worth of goods, too. And it reports net gross tax income since it came into existence about 15 years of $2.3 billion. So that's a return on total capital of about 0.6%. That's obviously below the real cost of money. And what has it given back to investors? Not a dime. Well, how is it possible to absorb and use a third of a trillion dollars in capital with nothing to show for it other than a big dent in your balance sheet? Is it because investors still believe that Amazon is going to make good, it's going to make money, it's going to pay off? Or is it because the capital is free? Well, we don't really know, but we know free capital causes all sorts of distortions, confusions, and grotesque financial events. In fact, there's a whole class of company whose shares people on Wall Street call never-never stocks. They're called never-never stocks because they will never return cash to investors. Now, Grant's uh, Interest Rate Observer had a list of some of these never-never companies. And at the top of the list was, guess what? Amazon, where it belongs. Also on the list was Facebook, Salesforce, Zillow, the New York Times was even there, Yelp, LinkedIn. Now, they're all companies, with the exception of the New York Times, that have turned into billion-dollar financial powerhouses thanks to the availability of free money. Capital is so plentiful that they can live off of it for years without ever turning a profit. Not only will many of these companies never make any money, but the share structure makes it unlikely that they will ever give any money back to shareholders, even if they do make it. They've given the insiders shares with, with, get shares with 10 times the voting power of the public shares. So when it comes to dispersed profits, if there ever are any, we know who will get the money, and it's not shareholders. And look who's buying the stocks. You know, in the first quarter of this year, the biggest buyer of U.S. companies was the companies themselves. You have to wonder, a company that cannot use its capital could normally give it back to the, the owners of the money, the shareholders. But instead, U.S. S&P 500 companies bought $160 billion worth of their own shares. Indirectly, this benefited shareholders, of course. By reducing the supply of stock, it raised the price of each share. But more directly, it benefited the people who made the decision to buy the shares back because they have stock option plans and bonuses based upon the stock price. But where did the S&P 500 companies get the money to buy so many of their own shares? Well, going back to 2012, Total corporate debt issuance has been about $32 billion. You know, it's not too complicated here. We put the round hole, round pin in the round hole. We find a snug fit because the uh, stock purchases and stock uh, bar and borrowing by corporates is about the same thing. Total stock buybacks have totaled $34 billion during that period when the companies borrowed $33 billion. So here's where it gets interesting. Why stop at buying your own stock? Uh, well, imagine a company that makes widgets. There are only so many people who want to buy widgets. So the company comes up with a novel plan. It's going to buy its own widgets with its own capital. Of course, it's totally senseless, but imagine. Investors notice sales and profits rising. They buy the shares and the stock goes up. This sounds crazy, but this is my point. In a NERC world, it's hard to know what's crazy and what's not. Now, in the first quarter in 2014, this year, 
IBM spent $8 billion on share buybacks and only spent $1 billion on capital expenditure and stuff like upgrading buildings and equipment. Capital expenditures, CapEx expenditures, expenditures have been going down for the last two years. This is why, by the way, productivity is barely increasing at all. The corporate world takes in the free money and it uses for all these financial games, buybacks, M&A, and so forth. Nobody wants to do the hard work of investing and saving and increasing real output. We checked Morningstar and we found IBM bonds maturing in 2017. They yield 1.78%. This puts it about half the real CPI rate. So effectively, IBM's getting this money for a very nerpy, better than free rate. So why not use it to boost sales and profits? Let's say it borrows a million dollars at 2% interest. It buys down, it buys its own products. The computers have a gross profit margin of 25% or so. This gives the company about $250,000 in earnings. And it can pay, it pays the 20,000 worth of interest on the debt. And it's got a clear profit of $230,000. Now the share price goes up because now it's got more sales, it's got more profits. In fact, the capital value of the company might go up more than the amount borrowed. So you look at how that works. You know, you borrow a million dollars, you buy your products, you buy your shares, you make a hundred thousand dollar net profit on the sales. IBM is trading at 13 times earnings, so the hundred thousand in additional profit translates into 1.3 million in additional share value. Shareholders come out $300,000 ahead. As I say, it seems crazy, but taking the economy as a whole, businesses, government, individuals borrow, and they spend the money, just as this example suggests. So the cash from one borrower turns up as sales and earnings on the books of another borrower. And this is never, never land. Anything is possible where you can get money for nothing. Well, I spent a lot of time at a ranch in Argentina this, this, this year. I was cut off from the TV and radio and internet. But I was thinking about this whole problem, this whole issue, about how you can get something for nothing. You know, it doesn't really seem possible. Nothing comes from nothing is the expression, and it reflects a deep truth. You know, there's the law of conserva conservation of energy and matter. You can't get something out of nothing. And once you have something, you can't get rid of it. You know, the things do not disappear. So uh, the law of conservation of energy tells us that once you, that all you can do is change things. You can change the way they're expressed. You can change how they uh, show up. But getting something out of nothing violates the laws of the whole universe. It's not possible. And of course it's not possible. It's a uh, free money is kind of oxymoronic. It's like honest dollar or reclusive film star, or rap music. It just doesn't exist. So if you think this free money coming from the Fed has no cost, you're probably going to be surprised. And you'll probably be disappointed. The bill is out there somewhere, somewhere in the future. Debt is essentially a financial arrangement between the past and the future. It's like taking, taking 10 years worth of holidays in one year, and then you pledge to work, work weekends in the future to make up for it. And eventually the future comes and then you don't want to work all those weekends. I was thinking about this, how this all was happening, when I was helping at our roundup at our ranch in Argentina. And at the time I couldn't figure it out. How can you get something for nothing? Who gets the bill? How? When? And then all of a sudden, this huge 2,000 pound bull charged me. 
Now, it's amazing how something like that concentrates your attention. You know, I practically flew over a six-foot fence to get away from him. And I got a demonstration of the principle of conservation of energy. The energy that I used to scramble over the fence was more or less equal to the energy that, uh, with which I hit the ground, when my head and shoulder hit the ground, and it absorbed that energy on the other side. But I think my head injury has actually helped me. I drool more often now, but I understand the NERP world better. Now, the traditional way we understand credit is this. A guy runs a surplus. He earns more money than he spends. Then he saves the money and lends it to somebody else. Like a farmer might lend a neighbor some of his excess time or his tomatoes. This excess is real savings. It's what enables the borrower to make something because he has something to work with. It's real. If he's lent some seed grain, for example, the neighbor plants it, and then he pays him back out of the harvest. If he throws it on barren rock or let it ro lets it rot, it doesn't come to anything, and he won't have any way to pay back the loan. Now, credit comes from savings. It came from savings, I should say, and savings were limited. So as they were used up, the price of credit rose. Borrowing decreased. This was the credit cycle which kept lending, debt, and the money supply under control, the natural credit cycle. But with the new financial system that came into being in the late 60s and early 70s, the money changed, and so did the type of credit. Gradually, the world economy came to operate without savings, without credit, without, without real credit. It was credit that you could consume. It wasn't real capital. And so the entire economy transformed itself in deep and abiding ways, which we are just now beginning to understand. And before I get into the details of this new system, I want to emphasize that this system that we have known has dominated our entire adult lives. And we take for granted now that this is the way things work. But it's not the way things work at all, and it can't possibly continue. Debt can't grow forever. And Japan is about to prove it. You know, if there's a single road, bridge, or municipal building in Japan that's in need of repair, I don't know where it is, because for 24 years the government has been plowing billions of dollars of savings, turned them into GDP-boosting public works projects. And now with more and more people retiring, more and more people spending their savings, and more money leaving the country than coming in, you know, the prime minister has loosed his famous three-arrow program, monetary policy, fiscal policy, and restructuring, but he's got nothing. He's hit nothing. Japan is probably going into the ditch before the U.S. There's a huge psychological bias towards believing that the present is the only thing that's real. We know it's real because we can see it. We have proof. But credit began expanding modestly in the late 40s, and it's been expanding ever since. My entire life has been spent in a credit expansion. I've never seen anything. I've never known anything other than a credit expansion. We all know in our minds that it can't go on indefinitely, but in our bones, we feel it will because it always has. That's why it's so important to try to understand what is really going on. If for no other reason than to overcome this momentum bias of our own experience, this will be the most difficult financial period of our lives because we have no experience of anything else. All we know is an aberration. It's a freak. But more and more, we are coming to understand this freaky thing. We see that it can't last much longer, and it will probably end in a catastrophic depression. Richard Duncan, economist Richard Duncan, warns us it could be the end of our civilization. Richard came to visit in Baltimore recently, 
And he points out that the Great Depression was at least partially responsible for World War II. It was a war that killed more people than all the wars put together before it. And that war began before people had nuclear weapons. And it began when people were not so dependent on an elaborate worldwide supply chain, an ultra-sophisticated, fragile electronic money system, and on extremely vulnerable urban lifestyles. In 1939, most of the world's people still lived on farms. They were at least partially self-sufficient. They bought and sold things with physical money. They didn't depend on ATMs or central banks. They could survive a credit contraction. And they had real money back then, too, money based upon gold. Richard Duncan has helped me understand this new economy. He studied the buildup of credit over the last 60 years. And at first, this credit expansion was fairly healthy. It's based upon the output that came after World War II. Technological advances and the way it was organized and so on, people took on more and more debt because they could afford to. Then, for a variety of reasons, this healthy credit expansion was replaced by an unhealthy credit expansion. Income stopped growing. The whole system began to look a little sick. Well, lots of things were going on, but one thing, and one thing only, made it possible for credit to continue growing as the fundamentals weakened, and that was the money. They took the gold out of the system in 1968. Before that happened, the money supply was limited by the available, available gold. The supply of savings was limited by the supply of money. The supply of credit was limited by the supply of savings. And the amount of debt was limited by the supply of credit. Then, after those changes, the limits were removed, and total credit skyrocketed. It was only about a trillion dollars in 1968. Today, it's, as I said, about 60 trillion. The U.S. government debt was only 347 billion in 1968. Today, it's over 17 trillion. That's about a 50 times increase. This is a new world. It's a new economy. This is new money. These are things that never existed before, as far as we know. Nobody knows how something like this unwinds. And I was on the verge of figuring this out when that bull charged me, interrupted my thoughts, so I can only now give you a partial understanding of it. <laughs> Let's stick with the money for a minute. This post-1968 dollar is a very different kind of money. It's not like the old money. It doesn't have anything behind it, neither gold, no services, no goods, it's nothing. It came from nothing, it is nothing. Banks produce it out of thin air. Now, you may think that banks are lending out deposits, or at least they have deposits to cover partially the money they lend out, but it's not true. The Federal Reserve lowered the reserve requirements so that after World War II, banks had about 18 cents cash on hand, real money backed by gold for every dollar they loaned out. Today, they have about two cents, and it's just paper. When a guy borrows, the banks give him credit. The credit is purchasing power that comes from nowhere. And then it enters the economy, and it looks just like real money. It costs nothing to produce, or nearly nothing. No one ever earned it or saved it. It was just nothing. And yet, between the 70s and today, the U.S. economy expanded by $33 trillion on this money. Cars, houses, pancake breakfast, lawnmowers, all of it inspired by this new money. Unlimited credit changed everything. It feels very much like getting something for nothing to me. It's money you don't work for or save. It's like winning the lottery. Or it's like Spain in the 16th century, very much like Spain. Spanish explorers had conquered the Aztec and the Inca, and they'd ship boatloads of gold and silver back to Spain. The Iberian Peninsula was soon swamped with money. As a result, the Spanish had so much money on their hands 
that they found it easier to buy goods from the English and the Dutch and the Germans and the Italians and so on, rather than make it themselves. And as a result, prices rose. And when the mines of the New World ran out, the Spanish had neither money nor any means to earn it because they had neglected their own industries. They were the poorest people in Europe for the next three centuries. Well, our money doesn't come from mines. It came from this credit machine. It was made possible, possible by this new flexible money. Now, you'd expect consumer prices to go up with all this new money coming into the system, but other things were going on too. China joined the international system in 79, the economic system, and Russia came in in 89. This was a huge increase of cheap labor, and it helped reduce the consumer prices all over the world. So it offset the Fed's, Fed's money printing. An economist looking at supply, looking at signs of inflation, never, never saw them. But it really wasn't the money supply that mattered. It was the supply of credit. Nobody ever, nobody had any real money anymore. Purchasing power through credit kept increasing at about the same rate as consumer prices. Banks have always increased their profit margins by lowering their reserves. Loans work for them and reserves do not. And with the new money system, they needed almost nothing in reserves because reserves really didn't mean anything in a totally credit-based system. All they needed was access to credit or the ability to create credit themselves, and they could create as much as they wanted. And as long as the uptake on credit was more than 2% a year, according to Richard Duncan, the economy expanded. If credit did not expand by at least 2% per year, the economy went into recession. So naturally, the industry that sold credit made money. Profits in the financial sector rose from only 10% of the total in the S&P to about 40% in 2007. It's actually amazing that banks could go broke. Their cost of money was near zero. And if a loan went bad, what difference did it make? It wasn't real money anyway. But in the crisis of 08 and 09, almost every one of the major banks on Wall Street headed for insolvency. And if, they, if the panic had been allowed to continue, they probably all would have gone broke. But how was that possible? Well, the big banks, they're called capitalist enterprises, but in a sense, they really don't have any capital. All they have is credit, and credit-based money. Bankers make loans, they package the loans and sell them to investors, they pay themselves big bonuses, and then when things go bad, they have no capital to cover the inevitable losses. So they wind to the central bank, and the Fed bails them out with even more credit on even better terms. Now, Neil Borofsky, he was the uh, inspector general of the TARP program. It was a $700 billion bailout. And he discovered that the bank took the money and they didn't lend it out to anybody. They used it to settle the accounts between themselves. And they also had a, a, a line of credit from the government, which nobody ever announced, no Congress ever voted on, of $23 trillion, or approximately six times the entire annual federal budget. Of course, the feds didn't have $23 trillion. They didn't have diddly squat. They ran the U.S. government at a loss for the entire 30 years preceding the crisis. And by 2009, they were showing a trillion, a $1 trillion deficit and spending $3 for every $2 they collected in taxes. So here's an economy where over a 30-year period, spending exceeded income cumulatively by approximately 200% of GDP, or the aforementioned $33 trillion. Note in passing that this credit was provided far in excess of available savings, 
which declined over the period from about 10% to about zero. Also note that the typical spender had less real spending power at the end of 2010 than he had at the beginning of 1980. In other words, people were spending money they didn't have, never earned, and didn't exist. And then in 08, the crisis threatened to undermine asset prices and send the whole thing back where it belonged. The feds, including a central bank, came in and they offered an amount of credit equal to approximately one-third of the entire net worth of the nation. That is to say, a fantastical amount, an amount that was almost unlimited, an amount of liquid capital that, only, that not only did not exist, it could not exist. And here's another oddity. When money is free and unlimited, who benefits the most? Well, the weakest borrowers. Credit spreads narrow because as long as the money flows, companies with weak balance sheets are not much more likely to default than those with strong balance sheets. The weaker companies gain the most because they attract the investors at a slightly higher interest rate. Junk-rated borrowers issued a record $380 billion of speculative bonds last year, according to Bloomberg. The news group further reports that the balance that these balance sheet bombs, they call them, are the top performers. They're up 94% since uh, 2011. And yet, in some ways, this is the strangest thing of all. By every measure, volatility is remarkably low. Nobody's worried. More debt? Who cares? <laughs> it may be crazy, but no one thinks it'll come to an end. So what do we make of all this? Well, here's what I make of it. The economy has been severely distorted. Hard to read anything into these numbers. And yes, there's some pretty strange thing going on. And the longer it goes on, the worse the eventual blow-up is going to be. The lack of volatility, to me, is like the proverbial calm before a storm. And here, I want to quote from my friend uh, Nassim Taleb, who wrote in Foreign Affairs magazine in 2001, the complex systems that have artificially suppressed volatility tend to become extremely fragile, while at the same time exhibiting no visible risk. Such environments eventually experience massive blow-ups, catching everyone off guard and undoing years of stability, or in some cases ending up far worse than they were in their initial volatile state. Indeed, the longer it takes for the blow-up to occur, the worse the resulting harm in both economic and political systems. Well, here's a prediction. You'll never make any money, not any durable money in these never-never land public markets. If the economy really improves, interest rates will rise, and companies that depend on zero interest rate financing will be out of business. And if the economy doesn't improve, the interest rates will sink further and investors will panic. Asset prices, either way, either way, the asset prices that have been bid up by a credit expansion will shrink when the credit contraction begins. When this will happen, I don't know. But Richard Duncan says volatility should increase in the second half of this year, as the Fed continues to reduce its QE program. It's quite possible that the stock market falls hard and that the Fed comes back with more QE. Duncan believes it could succeed in holding off the day of reckoning for many years. It's also quite possible that investors lose confidence and that the QE program doesn't work and that the whole thing begins to go away. But who knows? We don't know what the future will bring. But we know that at present, you have both a serious opportunity and a very serious threat. Free money is a gift, but there's a fuse attached to this gift, and it's lit now. Thank you.